Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we talked about early French exploration of North America and their establishment of numerous fur trading networks with the First Nations peoples they met there, as well as the part they played in local conflicts. Today, we're going to pick up just as New France has declared a royal colony and is given official military support in the midst of escalating warfare between the Haudenosaunee and virtually every other First Nations tribe in the area. So let's begin. All right, we're here on HI101 with Gary Hallman. Bonjour, mein mon ami. What? Was that a little German that just slipped there? You know what? It's funny. Uh, ever since I lived in Germany, every time I've tried to speak another language, people have told me I have a German accent when I when I speak it. If I, I, I mean, the French part of that sounded pretty Anglo to me, but you know. <laughs> yeah, no, like when I, when I, the few times I've been in France, everybody just assumes I'm German. That's the few really times funny. I have, you know painfully tried to walk myself through French. Ooh, la toilette. Oh, oh that's easy, baby. Oh, no. Ew, Gary. <laughs> Gary, gross. <laughs> so if you can't tell, we've been talking about the prestigious founding of Canada through the colony of New France in a very serious manner. So serious. And last time we were talking, there had been a a series of uh, wars between different First Nation bands, and the the situation had gotten so out of control, but also so lucrative, that uh, the French king, Louis XIV, decided to step in and take control of the colony away from the company of 100 associates that had been running it up until this point. I mean, they, they'd really just completely lost control of the entire situation. And I have a feeling maybe we're happy to have some some govern- government intervention in that situation. Yeah, you know, I, I find it interesting that the church, did they just kind of take it lying down or they just figured the gig is up and well, or did I mean, they really try and push back for their sway in all of this? So to give you an idea of, of, the, of the, the scope of the, the church's activities in New France at this point in time, the Jesuit missionaries who were trying to, and, and some, sometimes very successfully, uh, convert mainly Wendat people to Catholicism were really just concerned with the First Nations people that they were coming across. They weren't, they weren't that uh, concerned with running a successful colony mm-hmm. um, because any French people that were coming over were already Catholic, and so what's the point? Have they you were ever very, been to very... St. Marie among the Hurons? Sorry? Have you ever been to... Yeah. Yeah, I've been to St. Marie among Hurons. Oh, it's St. Marie. Yeah, not Sault Ste. Marie. 
Yeah, Sault Ste. Marie is a different city. Different place entirely. Sault Ste. Marie and then St. Marie among the Hurons. Fantastic place to visit if anybody gets a chance. Yeah, and, and up in that area, there's a lot of little towns with uh, Wendat names. Penetanguishine comes to mind. Penetang. Yeah. Beautiful country. The site of some horrible slaughters of Wendat people and Jesuit missionaries by the Haudenosaunee. And the church just kind of dubbed them martyrs and went on their way like yeah, that's and it's it's amazing like how you know strongly remembered the three martyrs are in modern canadian history versus the actual movers and shakers of that time you're more likely to find more monuments about the three the three martyrs yeah and, i the, the uh, only one the only one that came, comes to mind for me is jean de Brebeuf. i can never remember the other two names but i'll stick them in the notes why not but yeah, it's it's this whole thing. Like it's it's very, and I mean, it, it makes sense for the church to be focused on on that rather than on settlement necessarily. By 1648, the Thirty Years' War was over. The Peace of Westphalia was in place. The idea of nation states being uh, allowed to set their own state religions uh, had been formulated, and uh, you know the the safety of Catholicism as a French institution had been restored. That was no longer like this this uh, uh, worrisome issue for people in the company that were sending over these missionaries. So mainly, you were getting uh, people who were concerned for monetary reasons. And as we've discussed, it doesn't take that many traders to keep the fur trade going. You have some settlers, but not a ton. And what the, what the Crown realized when they took over in 1663 is that there were a lot more men than women like a lot more men than women and they were all single because you don't really bring the family along when you're going off to new france to become a voyageur it's just not how that works so you know people who lived year-round in quebec or in montreal or in port royal were starting families they were staying there but if you were actually out in in the woods doing trading you generally didn't start families yeah or if you did you tended to stay with them in the the First Nations band that they happened to be a part of. Yeah. Um, which the crown didn't really count. Not not that they, you know, somehow saw that as null and void, but more that that's not really helping make more French settlers necessarily. Mm-hmm. We we talked briefly about sending soldiers, but that isn't the only thing that the the king sent over right away as soon as he took over the the colony. Um there was a an intendant uh, named Jean Talon. Uh, who kind of ran the big picture stuff in New France and kind of went, okay, well, how do we turn this into like an actual self-sufficient functioning colony? And this this disparity between the genders was the first thing that he decided to address. And uh, the way this plays out is that over about 10 years, around 800 young women were sent from France to New France. They were known as the filles du roi, uh, the daughters of the king. And generally, they were incredibly poor. Like orphans. And... Orphans and yeah, like, you know, the eighth daughter in a family and, you know, stuff like that, where they were just, there was no life for them in France. French inheritance law is kind of, it's a mess, I guess would be the, the kindest way of putting it. Whereas in other countries in Europe, they tended to kind of like give everything to the first son and kind of divvy up the rest among uh, or, or sorry, uh, and, and, you know, find other things for the rest of them to do. So if you were like a third son, you might end up a merchant. And if you were like a fifth son, you're probably going into the priesthood. In France, if you had four sons, you're taking your land and you're dividing it up four ways. You're giving all of them a parcel of land, which just 
by the math doesn't work. Yeah. And that meant that giving away daughters for dowries was not as lucrative. Yeah. If we want to put it in such cold terms, lucrative as, as it might've been in other countries. And so girls from families that were not terribly well off had a dismal future ahead of them. This was an option. You sometimes see sources, I'm thinking specifically of that CBC documentary, try and play this off as being like, no, well, you know, they had a lot of choice about who they could marry. And so this is a good thing and stuff. Eh, let's not, let's not try and make this what it wasn't like they're, they're being sent to. There's nothing heroic or romantic about it. It it was, it was an awful thing. A lot of them died on the voyage over in very cramped quarters. Like it was, it was pretty awful. It was pretty awful. And when they got here, they were looking forward to a very difficult life. Uh, living off the land of New France in a very uh, different climate than they were used to. Winters are hard in Quebec. Uh, they're hard now, let alone uh, three, four hundred years ago. Oh, it's freaking freezing. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so cold. It's very cold. It's very, very cold. And, you know, throw in throw in the uh, all, all the modern conveniences of the 1670s. See how much you enjoy that one. Oh, yeah. Particularly living by a massive river. It's yep. just... If you've ever had the pleasure of being in Montreal in December, it is, it is I, so cold. I love Quebec. Quebec is beautiful. Quebec City in particular, I really like it. Have oh, you ever been? Probably, I I would say it's not a stretch to say it's maybe, architecturally speaking, probably one of the nicest cities in North America. Yeah, and, and specifically very old architecture. It yeah. feels like a European city. I believe it's the only walled city in North America. Uh, I'll double check on that. I mean, other cities have had fortifications, but I believe it's the only city that still has extensive. Yeah. Because I mean, the entire original uh, city is within a citadel. It's it's absolutely gorgeous. Oh, it's so nice. Anyway, we're we're getting off track. Um, Talon also offered things like marriage bonuses and baby bonuses. So have a healthy baby, get money. He was looking to up that population with, with very direct incentives. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it, it's obvious in hindsight to look at all the benefits that go around with the stronger French population. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, they're also looking at the, you know, what would become the 13 colonies, all the all the English colonies and going, there's so many more of them. There's so many more of them. It's It's a real military threat and a bigger population will help mitigate some of that risk. Mm-hmm. What's known as the Royal Highway is built between Montreal and Quebec to help facilitate the, the fur trade and just get people back and forth between the two major cities in Canada. So up until that point, people are just mostly using the river for transport? Mainly, yeah. The St. Lawrence, um, there's there's two words for river in French. I don't know if you knew that. The St. Lawrence is a fleuve, which means that it flows outwards from the interior into the ocean. So what you're doing is you're getting, you, you trek along the river, beside the river, carrying very little, and then you put together rafts of furs and you float it down the river oh yeah if you've ever seen the river like the current is quite fast yeah very fast like there's no way you're getting up that river but it's also very broad and relatively especially after uh montreal going out to the the ocean relatively clear like you can get significantly sized container ships up the St. Lawrence River today to Montreal. There's a there's a major commercial port in Montreal. Oh, in fact, you can get them all the way up to the Great Lakes. Well, but at Montreal, you have to switch them on to smaller ships. Yeah. And there's there's some rapids and stuff that you have to deal with. So, But Montreal was traditionally seen as like, that's how far up you get with the big ships. And then any further, you got you to gotta switch down a little bit. And we'll, we'll see that come up as we go. But anyways, 
furs are still absolutely the backbone of the New France economy. Like they're still worth a ton of money. In fact, uh, the de facto currency in New France is uh, what's known as uh, the MP, the made pelt. And that is one beaver pelt that has been skinned off the beaver, uh, spread out, like uh, they, they stretched them out on sort of a, like a frame uh, and let them cure. And once it's cured for one year, it's a made pelt because that's ready to ship back to France, get made into a hat. And so at trading posts, that was like the default currency. So you could buy things directly with pelts or things would have a made pelt value. So you would be like, hey, how much for this um, uh, this steel knife? And it'd be like, oh, that's a, I'm, I'm making this up. I have no idea what the real value is, but like, oh, that's a 20 made pelt knife. And so you could trade it for 20 actual pelts, or you could trade a couple of other things that also have made pelt values to them to get up to that. But that was the basis of the economy. Fun little fact that everyone will, well, everyone heard about it. I don't know if you'll remember it. Don't worry about it too much. But in the 1650s, there were two Coeur Dubois named uh, Radisson and Grosselier who were very friendly with the Cree, who um, were kind of way further north and west than most of the people that the French had been dealing with. They had been dealing with uh, mainly the Wendat, but also the Montanay, the uh, Odawa, uh, the Inu a little bit. The Cree told these two Coreaux that there were more and better pelts north of Lake Superior. Like, that's where the pelts were at. You think there's a fur trade down here? You don't know anything. And Radisson and Grosselier went back to Quebec and went, hey, like, we want to set up like a new trade up that way. And I don't get the impression they were the most personable men. They weren't, they were great. They were uh, brother-in-laws, actually. Okay. Um, That's why they were working together. At this point, the fur trade has become developed enough that you essentially need a license to officially trade furs to the, the, the company in the 1650s. And they didn't get issued a, a permit to trade. Why you would be able to come to the governor of Quebec and not get a fur trade permit as a coureur when you say that you've got like really good pelts, which you have proof of, by the way, you've brought pelts with you, uh, is beyond me. I, I can only imagine that they were uh, doing something to rub the governor the wrong way. These two went, okay, fine, and caught a ship to Britain. Oh, uh, wow. They met with uh, a number of representatives of the king, actually in 1666, which is kind of a big year. Like, again, to kind of put us in perspective of like what's going on in Europe at this point in time, that's the Great Fire of London. That's also one of the worst plague years in English history. That's, that's, the, that's the Britain that these guys are trading with when, when they're setting all of this up. Britain already had a claim on some Arctic waters, specifically in Hudson's Bay and uh, James Bay, which is an extension of Hudson's Bay. They had, they had claimed the area around it, but didn't really know what to do with it. Like, there wasn't really anything up there. It's a lot of ice. It's pretty kind of dangerous to be up there. It's pretty barren. It, there was like some there was some scheme to try and make make money off of uh, isinglass, which is a, a, a an extract that comes from like a, a fish liver that they were catching those fish up there. Like, that's the kind of like, well, maybe we can do this that they were talking about when it's pretty far stretched. Radisson and Grosselier walk in and go, listen, we've got something to tell you. And as soon as these men hear about this, they go, okay, well, let's, let's see what we can do about this. And they set up a, a trading company. It's what, what is now the Hudson's Bay company, which anyone from Canada knows exactly what that is. Purveyors is one of the of oldest blankets. They have they have very nice blankets. Proper Hudson's Bay blankets. Beautiful. The old ones go for like thousands of dollars. If you get one like pre nineteen thirty, you can sell it for thousands of dollars. I believe it. It's crazy. 
Anyways, the Hudson's Bay Company immediately uh, stamps a claim on the, the bay and every river and tributary that flows into the bay. Which, if you check that out, that is a lot many, of land. Many, tributaries. It is, I think it's around, it, it's over a million square kilometers of land. Wow. Uh, like 1.2 million square kilometers of land. So they're basically just staking things willy-nilly. And I mean, since there's nobody there to contest them. Exactly. I mean, that's how exploration works, right? Yeah, I guess so. And they start setting up a series of factories. And, and factories are, like, it sounds like they're they're like, I don't know, putting gears and pulleys and stuff Making in there nails no it's it, it's more like trading posts and so they put trading posts all along these rivers as a as a way to kind of funnel everything towards the bay and then they would sail ships north of of uh current day quebec down into the bay and pick up furs and just sail them off to england and it's probably the big single, single biggest economic blow to new france bar none uh, if they had managed to get in on that fur trade they probably would have been much better positioned than they will than they will end so up so many different things at this point now where it's like if only New France had done this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. This one's particularly interesting, though, because it rides on the back of two unpleasant men who kind of took their ball and went home. And by home, I mean England. To the enemy. And yeah, so so all of a sudden, uh, New France has pre- uh, uh, pressure from Britain, not just from the south by, you know, the... the by uh, you know New England, and from the east, from, from the contested Newfoundland, but also from the north, from the bay. They're kind of getting squeezed out a little bit, which isn't great. It's not going to come to a head for a while, but they're not comfy there. The other problem here is that the Hudson's Bay Company, when it was established, flooded the market with so many furs that it depressed the the, the price of furs. There were too many on the market. People could get it for a really good rate. And all of a sudden, the pelts that were coming out of New France were just not worth as much money. It basically crashed the market. They crashed the market. This is a this is a straight supply demand problem right here. So that was not great either. Let's flip back to sort of the the regional political problems that we had been talking about, kind of around New France, because in 1666, the uh, the French troops that had come along, or or had been sent by the crown when it became a crown colony in 63, they'd been there long enough that they had kind of gotten used to the place. They knew the lay of the land. They had a better sense of how New France worked, the Haudenosaunee raiding parties had gotten so bad that they decided to kind of cut it off at the source. So they invaded down into Five Nations territories, and they actually took the leader of the Mohawk, a chieftain named uh, Kanaquis, prisoner. They tried to find like a Five Nations army to attack, and they couldn't find anybody. I don't. Yeah, which makes sense, right? Yeah, it, it kind of does. I'm, Such I'm not a sure what group of. Well, yeah, it's it's. I, I'm not sure how much of this is they were evading the French troops who are just stomping around Vermont forests, or how much of it is there isn't a real standing army because they're using sort of a war party system, Hidden which one. basically everyone is a warrior and no one is a warrior kind of thing. I, I I couldn't really say for sure, but what I do know is that they found a lot of settlements that were effectively not defended, and. Instead of attacking an army, they, they found empty villages, and they just burned them. And this is one place where we can see that, like, as much good as the French do in terms of, like, relating to First Nations in, like, fairly egalitarian terms, there's certain things that they might not necessarily do in a European war that they are willing to do in North America. You don't just walk up on an undefended village and burn it to the ground, at least under normal rules of engagement at this point in time. Now... The Haudenosaunee did tend to leave 
villages and move around fairly often. So it's hard to say what exactly it is that they burned down. But they did also burn some fields, which is going to put a lot of pressure on the on the uh, Five Nations. And the the result of that is they, they come to the, the French and decide to negotiate peace terms. They're, they're worried enough by this new uh, force that they've kind of had enough. And things are quiet from the Five Nations for a little while, anyways. But then in 1675, the English, who had also been at war with the Five Nations. I mean, everybody had been pushing back against that those those earlier expansions that they that the Five Nations had made, you know, a couple of decades previously. The English negotiated a treaty with them, and it took a lot of pressure off of the the Five Nations, and now kind of emboldened them, like it gave them a chance to regroup, right? But the English, in doing so, also abandoned uh, the Susquehannock people who they had been previously allied with, and. The, the Five Nations turned around and just destroyed that that group. Again, trying to replenish population because they had lost a lot through famine, through warfare, through disease. Meanwhile, the, the French had continued expanding at least the reach of their trade. By the 1680s, they had been exploring the Mississippi. Um, they discovered that it was a, a massive river, both in, in terms of breadth and how long it was, and realized that this could be very, very useful for getting furs up from the south and onto the uh, the Canada uh, trade route. By 1682, the entire river had been claimed, uh, you know, claimed in, in scare quotes, uh, by René Robert Cavalier. And basically, though, this was just a, a chain of very poorly defended forts that were uh, purporting to own this territory. Those like token forces, basically. Basically. This did really upset uh, British settlers, um, or sorry, English settlers, because most of the most of the New England territories had been founded with an understanding that basically, here's a point on the shore, here's a point further north on the shore, everything between these two points and all the way to the west is this territory. And so claiming anything on the Mississippi is going to technically violate those claims. Yeah. I mean, neither neither group was really in any position to... Claim anything. Well, to defend those claims. But, you know, still, it's going to increase some tension between those two groups. New Orleans founded on the Gulf of Mexico, New Orleans, um, named after Orleans, the, the French city. And that entire territory gets named Louisiana after King Louis XIV. That's always going to be relatively empty compared to Canada, but it also makes French territory in North America huge quite substantial massive because it 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 extends fairly far to each side of the mississippi as well so it's it's large it's very large the remainder of the century is going to see basically two trends in new france one is kind of congealing law and order in the french settled portions of the continent so better just like rule of law and and governance and you know setting up a proper you know, judiciary system and figuring out how juries work and you know stuff like that like really kind of mundane but also very very important rule of law type things that kind of take new france out of this wild frontier stage of its life civility. and into yeah yeah like a viable place that normal people can live you don't have to be like a hardened um, criminal yeah yeah there's this rugged french explorer just to survive here um it's a place where families you know, farm for sustenance. And, you know, maybe that takes a little bit of the romance out of it, but there's a lot of interior to, to explore still. It's not as though the career were gone. Uh, they're still there. And then the other trend that you really see is the Five Nations raiding parties on weaker uh, weaker bands. 
they stay away from going after the Wendat again or going after Montreal again. But what they do decide to do is go after these tiny little bands that, you know, some of them, we don't even have records of them even existing anymore other than an oral tradition from the Five Nations saying that they conquered these people. Some of them may be fictional for all we know. But some of them we know existed, some of them we uh, have records of, and some of them are just simply gone. They were completely absorbed or destroyed by the Five Nations. New France's military becomes this interesting fusion at this point in time of continental professionalism and First Nations-inspired New World tactics. So they become masters of what they call uh, la petite guerre, which is the little war. It's actually the same uh, term that eventually will uh, give us the term guerrilla. Yeah. That's just the Spanish form of it. But we did it here first in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. What that actually means is smaller bands, hit and run raids. Um, ambushes. Ambushes, yep. A lot of focus on actual like skill of the individual working in a cohesive and uh, effective unit rather than these just like masses of troops like you know marching in columns of a thousand which is in interesting and must have been very chafing for the continentals because correct me if i'm wrong but like that kind of ambush hit and run tactics was kind of seen as unbecoming a like unprofessional sure yeah no that's 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 accurate i would i would say that's very accurate i think the key to this is that when those regulars were sent to uh, to New France, they didn't come back. This wasn't like a two year tour that you this did in New France and forever. then come back. You that you you live there now, and you are now you're now a Canadian. The term Canadian, by the way, uh, mostly originally referred to First Nations. Um, that's what uh, the 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 settlers of New France would have collectively called any First Nation people, but. After some time, it started referring to any native of that region, the, the St. Lawrence River and the surrounding areas. So they sort of got rolled into the same uh, ethnonym as the, the First Nations that they lived with, which I find kind of interesting. So these soldiers became Canadian as well. They lived there. They understood what it meant to face the Five Nations. They understood what sort of what, what the rules of war were in New France and the rules of war in New France don't have any place for telling your enemy that you're going to be waiting on this battlefield and we're going to fire a cannon at 10 and that's when we go. That's not how it works here. Here you drop in in the dead of night and it's a very, very different thing. And you can't play by the same rules and, and expect to be effective. So they stopped playing by those rules. Um, Fair enough. Yeah, they, they went native in a, in a certain sense. The Five Nations, you know... It, it, it was just this cycle over and over again of getting fed up enough that they would actually start going after French settlements. Uh, in 1683, they started actually clashing with the, the native groups that were closest to Fran the, the French. So, you know, especially the Wendat, but, you know, moving up from those small bands again. And the French decided to finally, you know, like, let's do something about this. Let's try and put an end to this. And this is kind of where uh, what we would call the Beaver Wars start kind of coming into the, the final act. The governor of New France, uh, a guy named uh, Devonville, lured all 50 of the sachems, the, the Five Nations sachems. Uh, a sachem was, it, it's somewhere like above a chieftain. Like these are, these these 50 people together, that council is that sort of like mythical Haudenosaunee council that rules all five nations. These are the 50, this is like, this is like calling the entire House of Commons or the entire Congress to a negotiation. 
he gets all 50 sachems to meet under pretense of uh, forming a truce. Then he claps them all in chains and sends them all to Marseille uh, in France. He sends them all back to Europe to serve as galley slaves. Brutal. Then the Canadian military goes on the offensive deep into Seneca territory, as far as the Seneca capital of Ganondagan, where they basically destroy it. It was like, they're, they're not holding back anymore. They're done with this whole thing. In September of 1687, they went after the Mohawk, who are the strongest tribe of the, of the Five Nations. They decimated their crops so badly that there was a starvation that winter. Like they, they destroyed over a million bushels of corn that was there ready to feed these people over the harsh winter. So many people starved to death that it basically rendered the Five Nations incapable of really any major further military action for some time. There was a, uh, a war that broke out in the next year with the English. It's called King William's War. A lot of these North American wars, they just name after whichever king is in power. Uh, 1688 to 1697, so nine years. And the English contracted the Five Nations to fight with them, but it wasn't nearly as effective as maybe it would have been even 10 years earlier. Uh, they were they were really a hard done by like after. a shadow of what they were previously a little bit and i don't want, i don't mean to give the impression that they were out of the fight entirely yeah but but they were they were sorely wounded by all of this so the english with the five nations the french with their allies they fought together and i mean the five nations started seeing england as maybe more of a threat to them than the french because the english the war didn't end up, by the way, being anything terribly consequential. It was a bunch of skirmishes against each other, as most of these are. But working with the English, they realized that the English didn't really value them as anything more than uh, cannon fodder. They weren't seen as, as trusted allies. And what's more, there were so many more English than French that the, first na or that the five nations went, maybe these are the ones we actually need to be worried about. Yes, we've had a vendetta against the French for nearly 100 years, and yeah, maybe it's been for good reasons, but maybe they're not the ones we need to worry about. So in 1701, there's another meeting between the French and the Five Nations, and they negotiate something called the Great Peace of Montreal. And the, the consequences of this basically are that the Five Nations are no longer going to attack either the French or the French allies in return for access to the fur trade. And this time, the French finally agree to those terms. And this it's is... a huge game changer. Yeah, it's a huge game changer. And on one hand, you understand why the French were so reluctant to work with them all of this time. They have more important allies that they need to support. But if they're going to agree not to attack their allies, then what's the issue? Well, that's that's exactly it. And, and you know, the, the, the Wendat and these other allies need to kind of come to grips with the fact that maybe they don't like the Five Nations trading with the French, but it's better than the devastation that they've been suffering for nearly 100 years. And they, they do accept that. And I mean, it stabilizes the fur trade in the entire area, which is good for everybody's economy because no one's worried about their trains just carrying pelts being raided by the other side, which was a very real risk and made a lot of people really reluctant to trade furs and hampered the fur trade. It also puts more furs into the market because now the Five Nations can sell to the French as well. Stabilizing the region is going to be good for everybody here. And the Five Nations, especially because, number one, it was being shown time and again that they couldn't actually hack it against the new order of the, the royal New France. And the professional French military. Yep. 
but also that they were they were so afraid of the English that they felt like continuing to attack the French and weakening themselves was just leaving themselves open to that potential English attack uh, at some point in the future. It protected the five nation land gains. So basically the French agreed to uh, recognize all that land that they had captured in the last hundred years. But it also accommodated some of the displaced tribes who no longer had homes. It, it They carved off chunks of land for them to actually, you know, have a reasonable uh, living uh, without just kind of wandering out beyond the Mississippi somewhere. It also put the five nations in a really advantageous position, um, like we talked about a little bit last time, where you know, they are a, a sovereign nation and they are militarily advanced and they can side with either England or France uh, as they see fit on different on different issues and makes them much uh, safer. And I mean, that's going to mean the five nations are not going to lose any power for a few decades now. It's going to be quite some time that they can really uh, leverage this position to their advantage. The new France that comes out of this is is pretty stable. It's thriving. The population is growing incredibly quickly. Those baby bonuses work very, very well. Not nearly as quickly as the English colonies, but compared to what it once was, at least there's something resembling like an actual society here. Yeah, it's, it's here. pretty good at this point. Yeah. In 1702, another war breaks out, Queen Anne's War. Uh, it runs 1702 to 1713. This one is the North American theater of the War of Spanish Succession. So this is another time where it's like, okay, well, this is an extension of something that's happening in Europe that's far more important than anything that's happening in North America. But because these uh, colonies are affiliated, they're still going to kind of get into it a little bit. So are they more just at this point, like, officially at war, but in actuality life goes on? Or are they, like, active? No, they're they're actively at war. I think, I think maybe a, a more accurate way of looking at this would be Man, I hate those English down there. They're they're always just ah, I hate them Be down there. English. Oh, what's that? We're at war with England. Great. Let me grab my musket. Finally, here we go. Like it's you know what I mean. Like it's an excuse to maybe blow off some some steam that's been there for some time. So I I don't think it's a token fight. I think if anything, it's an excuse to go to war in a way that they probably would have wanted to anyways. And particularly, I'm thinking if it's still kind of more of a feudalistic system. You know, there's a lot to be gained for, like, whipping up your people to be like, yeah, did you hear? They yeah. said bangers and mash is better than Aunt Dewey. Get at them. <laughs> uh, perfect. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they'd really been trying to make some some changes to the way that whole feudal system worked. But if anything, it was, it was changes that would really exacerbate this. Because in the very early days of the company, pre-royal decree, the seigneurs who were the feudal lords oftentimes didn't live there. They were in France. They just happened to, you know, uh, own these parcels of land and anything good that the habitants could scrape out of that meager existence, a tithe of that still went to some guy in France. And, you know, that just showed up as like a little note on his monthly statement. Oh, they made a little more money. Um, there were reforms put in place that like, no, if you're a senior, you have to live on the land and you have to uh, improve the land. Like there are certain things that it's like, okay, if you make this much money, then you have to turn around and put in uh, a mill or you have to put in, you know, you have to clear land, for, clear trees for roads and, you know, stuff like that. Um, so there had been some improvements there. But if anything, that ties those lords more closely to like local politics and gets them like even more in a fervor. Like if you're if you're a landlord over in France, you don't really care what your what your 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 serfs are doing over in New France. You've got bigger things to worry about. We're at war with real England. But if you're living in New France, like yeah, you, you've got a vested interest in what happens here. 
Queen Anne's War, uh, incidentally, this is uh, th- this is a war where like a lot of the people fighting in this war, uh, once it's over, people serving in the Navy would end up like down in the Caribbean as like the traditional pirates, like the parrot on the shoulder. Johnny Depp style. Yeah. Yeah. So again, to try and like center ourselves in terms of like era, the, uh, the fallout of this war for New France and for North America as a whole is what's known as the Treaty of Utrecht. Because in 1710, um, the British Navy had actually uh, besieged Port Royal in Acadia, and they had managed to take it. And when the Treaty of Utrecht is drawn up, they create some borders, and Acadia is still left under British rule. Um, some other changes that happen is that uh, Newfoundland is formalized as a British colony, and the territory around Hudson's Bay is formalized as British, but there's a little bit more solidification of the, uh, the Mississippi as being French territory. So nobody's terribly happy about it, but everybody kind of gets what they want. It's sort of bit of a Pyrrhic victory in a lot of ways. Yeah. But Acadia is going to turn into a big problem for uh, for Britain down the road, mainly because everybody's told, all right, well, you have to swear uh, fealty to the British crown. And they were like, no, are you kidding me? I'm French. And they were like, oh, OK, well, I guess that's fine then. And tensions are just going to simmer for the next 50 years. So watch out for that one to pop off in a little while. <laughs> now, the island of Cape Breton is still French, which is really interesting. Britain didn't really see a whole lot of strategic value to that, mostly because they wanted Acadia for Halifax, or or what would become Halifax. Halifax hasn't actually been founded yet, but they wanted the harbor, the natural har- the natural harbor. So France turns around and builds the fortress of Louisbourg on Cape Breton, and it's this massive fortification. It's really it's honestly it's quite it's, big. It's huge. Have you been there? Yeah, I have. yeah, yeah. It's very cool. They've re- they've they've rebuilt I think like a quarter of it, and even the quarter that they've rebuilt is it's massive. Just enormous anyways so now the french have a way of like policing the entrance to the saint lawrence river because that that island sits right on the way that you would get into the saint lawrence which is the uh the bloodline of um the fur trade that's everything from montreal everything from quebec city comes up the saint lawrence both of those cities are right on the river so very strategically important for them the borders of acadia aren't very clearly outlined in the treaty though which is a bit of a problem because the British start kind of nudging those borders in a little bit further into French territory. And the people living there will have none of it whatsoever. Both the, the French Acadians and uh, what's known as the, the Wabanaki Confederacy. This is another, interestingly enough, a confederation of five different First Nations bands. The Mi'kmaq, who we've talked about a little bit before, Passamaquoddy, Maliset, Penobscot, and the Abenaki. And they've, like, Five Nations style, decided to, like, get together and try and, like, present a, a stronger front because they've realized that all those little nations sooner or later get uh, picked Steam off. Rolled. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just, like, purely a survival move. So... The Wabanaki and the Acadians outside of like the formalized British portion of Acadia set up these forts along uh, the borders and they are constantly fighting little skirmishes with British patrols who, you know, sometimes try and like assert their dominance, sometimes decide that it's not really worth it. But they've got this little pest on their borders for the next few decades. And then the French and Mi'kmaq who actually live inside Acadia proper, like the inside the British Acadia are complacent to all of this. Like they don't care. They're, they're fine or even supportive of it. So like they've got like an insurgent population. It's really problematic for them. Around this time, the fur trade starts dying down. Uh, people are finally, finally tired of beaver skin hats. God knows why. <laughs> 
I mean, it doesn't help that the Hudson's Bay Company has flooded the market so badly. Uh, it never really recovered from that completely. And falling fur prices led to a diversification of the economy, which it's a good thing, really. And it meant that they got a little bit heavier into some of those other industries we talked about, the fisheries, the timber, potash, all of that stuff. There is another short war that we're not going to get too into. This one's King George's War, 1744 to 46. Uh, Louisburg actually fell to the British. It's crazy. When you see Louisburg, it's like nothing could take this thing. No, it, it fell no problem to the British. No um, problem, eh? Yeah, it really wasn't. I mean, like they put up a fight, but you'd think I a fortification of that size should that that's built like purposely, like for for that purpose of repelling a British sea invasion, would have a better shot at it, and would be better supported by the French given its like strategic importance. But no, it was taken. But Annapolis Royal, which is is what. Uh, Port, Port Royal became uh, in Acadia. So the capital of Acadia uh, fell to the French in the same conflict. So at the end of it, they did a little tradesies. Uh, the French got Louisbourg back and the British got Acadia back. But this time the borders were a little bit better defined. That being said, two things happen really quickly right after this. The borders are better defined. So number one, the British go ahead and actually build like they, they kind of abandon Annapolis Royal as the capital and they build Halifax at this point. Uh, they decide to build like a new proper British capital this time. It's going to have a good port. It's going to be well fortified. This is this is what they've always wanted here. And New France responds by rather than just like these unofficial border skirmish parties, New France responds by building actual forts on the borders of Acadia. So as you can imagine... Things are a little bit tense. They're getting a little bit ratcheted up. You could call this military escalation. Um, I think this is a good place to stop. And when we come back from the break, we'll see how they kind of very peacefully de-escalated all of this, hugged it out. Just kidding. We're going to get into some serious fighting. Be right back. Oh. We're back on HI101 here with Gary Holman. We're back. We're back. And I think if you were to talk to 13-year-old me, almost everything that we talked about in that last section, other than maybe the Acadians being taken in the Treaty of Utrecht, I think everything else would have been like kind of news to me. Oh, yeah. Definitely new knowledge. The Beaver Wars were almost... like That's, that's like 80 years of conflict. The only thing I'd be able to tell you out of this time period is like, did you know that the Micmac use these certain types of fishing techniques yeah there is that there's that focus on like very banal social history when it comes to the history of new france i think you know like we talked about when we very first started this i think partially because there's a lack of respect for the legitimacy of the politics between various first nations groups but also because like they're trying to like sanitize it a little bit because when it's like hey let's take a slice of life in new france it's like oh this is classically nasty brutish and short. You're going to you're going to die a horrible death in the middle of the woods somewhere because this is the the least tamed land that's ever existed or you're going to be farming on your very long thin farm and a five nations raiding party is going to come through and that's going to be it or like you know like that's just or 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 one winter you won't have enough uh turnips and that's it. That's it's like fun to talk about. Oregon Trail. Yes. Man, Oregon Trail sounds so nice compared to some of the stuff that New France was dealing with. Yeah, there's just so many more buffaloes to kill and stock up on. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was a difficult life, and a lot of the difficulty came from 
politics that were native to that region that France just kind of blundered its way into. And for the most part, you know, handled fairly gracefully, but, you know, made some made some missteps of its own and, and, and certainly changed the landscape. But now we're going to get into some very familiar territory. We are going to talk about the Seven Years' War. Ah, uh, yes. How long was the Seven Years' War, Gary? I believe it was seven years. Nine years. Nine years? Yeah, gotcha. Dang, trick question. There are very there are very few wars this that are named for like an amount of time. Yeah, there's very few wars that are named for an amount of time that are actually that amount of time. That's what you'll learn. Thirty Years' War, one of the very few that's actually right on. Huh. Yeah. Hundred Years' War, way longer. I feel like this would this is like every history teacher's favorite trick question. Did you have one of those quizzes too where it's like, what month did the October Revolution happen in? And then you're just left in there, it's like well, I feel like an only an idiot wouldn't choose October, but maybe that's what they want me to think. Man, I yeah, that's a that's a that's a classic history teacher move right there. It was November, by the way. They were still on the Julian calendar. That's the trick question. See, trick questions. Trick question. Yep. Mm-hmm. Ignorance is bliss. The, the Seven Years' War breaks out in 1754, and I should be clear. Um, we call it the Seven Years' War here in Canada. It's known as uh, as the Seven Years' War in Quebec, or also alternatively, uh, the War of Conquest, which tells you how this is going to go. But in the United States, it's known as the French and Indian War. You may have heard that term before. We are talking about the, the same war here. Do you know who started the Seven Years' War? I do not. George Washington. Really? Yeah. He kind of started... I mean... Thanks a lot, America. I'm... I'm you know, to, to be fair, I'm, I'm being a little bit simplistic about this. Nope. Um, it was George Washington. There's escalating, ter- uh, there's escalating um, uh, tensions between France and England, obviously, over the Acadian border. And there, there's, there's a few other things going on here, like uh, ma- mainly around the Mississippi, those, those, those fortresses that we've talked about. But yeah, it's, it's really, it's one of the few conflicts that we're talking about today that don't start in Europe and the, the North American colonies go like, yeah, us too, and then go to war. It grew from like this, this tiny regional dispute where uh, George Washington, who was 22 at the time, was commanding a, a militia from Virginia. And he ambushed a French patrol in disputed territory, kind of not that far from what is Pittsburgh today. And he kind of flubbed the whole thing. Like, it did not go great. And it's one of those things where, like, he got hailed as a hero when he got home because he didn't let everybody die. Like, yeah. it, was one, it was one of those. But still a lot of people died. Yeah. Like, he, he ambushed the French and he got... He, uh, he performed an orderly retreat, which managed to save the lives of many men. Like, it, it just... Let's put it this way. This failure haunted him the rest of his career, and you'll see some of the lessons that he learns in the Seven Years' War all the way through his career as a general in the American Revolution. But yeah, this is a this is a formative experience for him. Now, again, this isn't this isn't the only thing that causes the war, but if you were to point to kind of a flashpoint, that's a that's as good as any other one to point to. Okay. It's it's kind of important to remember that like there are two million British people in North America at this point in time. And yeah, that counts on the Hudson's Bay and yeah, that counts Newfoundland and, and Acadia and all of this, but that's 2 million people. It's a lot. It's a lot of people. There are 60,000 French. They're very outnumbered. I had no idea the disparity was that big. It was, it, it, it was enormous. And it really comes down to the attitudes between the two, because by this time, you know, for a very long time, 
New England has been a, a religious refuge and it's been taking in settlers on that pretense. It's not just uh, an economic pol uh, uh, colony. It is that, but there is also this idea of kind of a, a place that religious outsiders can go and just kind of be themselves. The uh, the French are still just like, it's very much like a, a commercial venture. And yeah, there's the settlers, but in a lot of ways, though, those are there to help support the fur trade. Okay. And France doesn't see it as terribly valuable. And the context for that is that they have the Caribbean, where the French, the British, and the Spanish are all uh, active. And that's where the real money is, because that's where the sugar cane is. Mm -hmm. And that's making the money. And, you know, the furs are on the decline. Like, why keep putting a whole bunch of resources into a resource, uh, into supporting a trade that is failing? Sugar's not going anywhere. It's bigger every day. So the French are really looking at that as being, like, the most lucrative avenue for uh, for their support in the new world. And when you run the, when you run the numbers, they're right. It's making them more money. So it's, it's, it's yeah, not it's, that surprising. It's not, it's not going to give them the return on investment if they're just, you know, draws of water and hewers of wood and right. not much else. Exactly. And I mean, having a religious refuge in the new world is advantageous for, uh, for the British. It's very helpful for them. They've gone through a lot of really charged religious issues in their history and, and they're fine with having a place to, that they can send people who just kind of don't fit in. France is a very strongly Catholic country, and while there are some groups of Protestants in France, there aren't that many of them, and the ones that are there are very heavily persecuted. But rather than setting up New France as like a, a refuge for that, they're setting up New France as like another very strongly Catholic place. And so it's not as though the Huguenots, the French Protestants, can go to New France as a way to like start a new life for, uh, free of persecution. That's just not how it works. If anything, they're going to end up in a in one of the Caribbean colonies and just not really mention their religious practice terribly often. But that New France society isn't the place to, to integrate for them. The Seven Years' War that takes place in Europe actually ends up being uh, an extension of the New World conflict. So the, the warfare between France and England starts up uh, in the continent uh, as a reaction to all of the, these tensions uh, escalating. This is the framework for what's known as the Acadian expulsion. Remember we talked about how the Acadians yeah. weren't willing to swear fealty to the British crown and kind of tacitly supported uh, military action against their British rulers. Well, when war broke out in 1754, the governor of Acadia basically went, this is a liability and he's not wrong. No, I mean, absolutely that's, not. That's, that's right. That's true. And, that isn't to say that every single Acadian was against British rule. There were some who had kind of accepted that this is what's happening. It's been 40 years. Yeah, yeah it's, it's been 40 years. But like, you know, I'd say the majority were against British rule, would prefer to yeah, be under French rule. Yeah, at that point is basically an entire generation of people. They're still speaking French, though. Like, you know, like they're very culturally tied to France still. And, and you know, if France happened to take Acadia in the conflict, they probably wouldn't complain all that much. Yeah. The governor reacted by basically expelling every single Canadian person there. So every single French person and every single First Nations person. So the Mi'kmaq were completely displaced out of Acadia. And the French were, I mean, some of them escaped to Quebec. Most of them were forcibly removed from their homes and taken elsewhere. 
most of them to the Caribbean, uh, but others to France, others to like various various locations. A lot of them to New England, which the the hope there was that they kind of be spread out throughout these British colonies and Didn't lose their identity. End up in Louisiana as well. Eventually, they would end up in Louisiana. At this point, that's still French territory, though. Yeah. So they have there are they're they're not sending them to Louisiana yet. You're right, though. Eventually, after the war, they'd be a, a lot of them would end up moving to Louisiana because. New Orleans ends up being this really interesting center of French culture left over from that time as uh, as being a, a French colony. And any any French speaking, uh, well, any any Acadians that had been expelled who didn't feel comfortable in the Caribbean or didn't feel comfortable in uh, New France or in, in New England, sorry, some of them went to Quebec. A lot of them went to New Orleans. And the word Cajun is actually a corruption of the word Acadian, Acadian, Cajun, you know, drop the A, slur the D, that French identity in Louisiana is is a result of, of this expulsion, indirectly at least. The, cent- the census before this expulsion showed uh, 14,100 people living in Acadia. Over 11,500 of them were expelled. So, wow. A couple Basically thousand, everybody. A couple thousand dodged this expulsion. That's it. It should be noted that this is still very much a sore point for people of Acadian descent. And I think understandably so. It, it, it was a pretty broad policy. Uh, families were split apart. It, it really didn't do anything to differentiate between active insurgents and just folk, which is never really a good thing. Nope. A lot of people uh, would eventually return uh, to the region and Acadia would become the, the province of Nova Scotia. Uh, the British didn't really like the idea of, of French Canadians coming back into that area. So a lot of the Acadians who were hoping to kind of return to their their homes ended up in New Brunswick. And today, New Brunswick is actually the only uh, bilingual Canadian province. And have also very much over time developed their own distinct French Canadian identity, mm-hmm. very separate from, you know, modern day Quebec. Yeah, for sure. Now, I always thought that that was the only Canadian territory that was bilingual, but that's not true. A couple of the territories are uh, have have more than one official language with uh, various First Nations language languages. So that was news to me, just throwing that in there. I always, you know, coming up in school, was told that New Brunswick was the only one uh, that was uh, that had two official languages. But yeah, not the case. Oh. Um, yeah. Uh, specifically, Nunavut is... Oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. makes a lot of sense that they would uh, have... Uh, Inuit languages as an official language. So anyways, we're not going to go blow by blow on this war. That gets super boring. As a general rule, the course of the war uh, goes that the British are very good at big, clear planes where they can throw standard European style pitched battles because what they have to work with are British redcoats, like the the best of the British Empire, very uh, disciplined professional soldiers. And the British regular at this point in time is arguably the best soldier when working in a unit in the world. British troop discipline is second to none. It is absolutely outstanding. However, let's not forget that those uh, French regulars who were dropped off a century before this and never allowed to come home formed the core of the new France military. And that is the militia that New France is working with here. And 
when it comes to anything happening in the interior, anything happening in the wild, the British don't stand a chance. Those, uh, those French troops will come down on them and they will come down on them hard. And the British will get a little bit miffed that they're not playing by the rules and the French won't care because they won the battle. So they're, they're very much just doing hit and run tactics and small skirmishes and yeah. And, and not even just that, but in the way that they'll defend their forts, right? Like they'll have people within the forts, but they'll also keep patrols running outside. And if, uh, if a, a British force rolls up on a, on an outpost expecting to, you know, besiege it and wait until they starve out, they're probably going to get hit on two or three sides by French uh, militias that they had no idea were coming. Now, that isn't to say that British didn't have interior victories or that the French uh, didn't have any success in pitched battles, but, you know, that's that's the general character of the war. It's also worth noting that the French had a lot of allies in this. France proper didn't send any extra troops to help with this, unlike Britain, but France had all of these relationships that it had been building over, you know, more than a century of, of living among these people. And in this war, they were working with the Wendat, the Ojibwa, the Potawatomi, the Winnebago, the Mississaugs. Uh, later on in the war, they would end up uh, flipping the Cherokee to their tribe from working with the British. They had the support of like, a lot of these First Nations, which is where the name the French and Indian War comes in, right? Okay. Unfortunately, in 1758, it was a really, really bad year for smallpox among the First Nations. And... Where in Britain or where in New England, that wasn't as much of a problem because they weren't as reliant on First Nation uh, allies. This significantly weakened the the French and French allied troops. And it was really the, the turning point of the war. And, you know, just another example of the way that Colombian contact had some very unintended consequences um, yeah. that rippled through centuries. So the same year, uh, Louisbourg was again taken after a siege by the British. It just wasn't a great fort, I guess. I wonder why that is. I think the majority of it is um, just support. Yeah, it didn't have any. You know, you can make a you can make a stronghold as as strong as you want, but if you don't staff it with anybody, you got to eat. Yeah, that's that's how sieges work. You got to eat. I I didn't look into specifics of of how that siege in particular broke. I know it was relatively long, but I mean. Still, the, the impenetrable fortress didn't quite go as planned. And in 1759, faithfully, uh, the British were able to besiege Quebec City by sea, or by river, I suppose, because they had managed to take Louisbourg, and, and the, the St. Lawrence was now completely undefended. So they sailed right up the river and, and parked their boats right outside the city. Quebec City is up on a hill, on a cliff overlooking the river, and... You know, the, the, the ships stayed parked there for, or at anchor there, sorry, for a while before a whole lot of anything happened. I mean, the French tried to disperse them using fire ships. It didn't go terribly well, but they basically besieged them throughout the summer. And then in September 17, 1759, specifically the 13th, the British general, James Wolfe, ordered a number of men to climb up uh, the cliffs in the middle of the night. And there was a small force of... Uh, 24 men and they climbed up these cliffs in between the walled city and the only sort of fortified encampment that the that Quebec had placed outside of its walls because it put a lot of faith in the strength of those walls and the unlikelihood of the the British actually being able to get up 
uh, north of Quebec City without them hearing about it and being able to bring forces to bear. They they also had forces uh, fairly well north of the city that they believed they'd be able to bring back into into defense. There were about 100 guys in this fortified encampment. These 24 British soldiers were able to clear out the entire camp uh, without too much trouble. Someone did actually manage to escape from the camp and get back to Quebec City and went to the, the general in charge of... Um, of defenses there, the Marquis de Montcalm, uh, Louis-Joseph, and told him, the, the British are here, like, they're going to attack, we need to do something about this. And uh, Montcalm called the guy crazy and just dismissed him, like, didn't believe his story, had him taken away, um, believed that the stress of battle had been too much for him or something like that. So he had his warning and he didn't... Another strange twist of fate. Yeah. General Wolfe got 4,500 troops up these cliffs and onto these plains outside of, of Quebec City. It's, they're, they're known as the Plains of Abraham. And that's uh, those three words are, are some of the most culturally charged oh, words this is maybe, in Canadian culture. Yeah, this is probably the defining moment in terms of Canada-French-English relations. Yeah, specifically those, the, the, the relationship between French and English Canada. And yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, I've, I've been to the Plains and... It's it's kind of just a big field, and it's 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 an odd feeling. Like you can understand the the significance of everything that happened here, but also it just it's it's a cool place to have a picnic too. Yeah, like you know what I mean. Like it's just sort of there, and it's kind of like wow, uh, like a, an incredibly pivotal thing happened right here, and you you might not know it if it wasn't for all the plaques and and signs and things, paintings, paintings. There's some great paintings, beautiful um, paintings. I'm I'm a big fan of of the 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 death of General Wolf. Um, General Wolf, the, the painting, the death of General Wolf. I realized that was unclear. General Wolf actually died very early on in the, or or was was killed, or very early on in the the fighting. It took him a few minutes to die, but once once this this group of forty five hundred men were up the cliffs, they arranged themselves in a line across the entire the entire plain, which is more than a kilometer long. He had to stack them normally the the british line would be three deep he had to stack them two deep in order to reach all the way across and started advancing on the city montcalm had a little bit more than that in in number of troops that he could have fielded but most of them were militia and not really like they wouldn't have, yeah they, they wouldn't have done anything in that battle they don't know how to fight in a line like at all and a line is useless unless everyone is working together it's devastating when used properly but it is a complete disaster uh, when not. So Montcalm actually fielded a fairly similar number of people. And it's one of those things where it's kind of like, well, why, like you're in a, you're in a walled city, like why are you pushing out? It's because the, the British were hoisting uh, cannons up the cliff, like constantly. They were getting artillery emplacements put in place. And Montcalm realized that the walls wouldn't hold against an artillery barrage. He couldn't. He couldn't hold it. He realized that his only chance was to hit the British military as quickly as possible before they could get entrenched and before they could get artillery put in place. And maybe if he managed to succeed in that, like, just all-out battle, maybe he would have a chance of keeping the city. This battle lasts, like, under half an hour. It's incredibly short. That short, eh? Yeah, it was very, very short. Basically, what goes down is the, the, the French come out they form their line as well. It's not as well formed as the British one. It never is. The British were 
masters at this. This is what they they drilled for for years. The French fired early. No one's entirely sure if it was nerves or if it was poorly placed uh, command, but muskets kind of aren't known for their accuracy and lines are more effective the closer you get and the french fired badly um the british waited for the french uh, like they, they stopped and they waited for the french advance they waited until they were th- they were within 30 yards that's less than 100 feet that's like that's very very close they had charged their muskets with double shot they had put two balls in each musket, which means less range, but it means more devastation. The, from, from all accounts, that that first volley was, you know, no one had ever really seen anything quite like it. Have you ever have you ever seen one of the reenactments of people firing in volley? They'll get like twenty or twenty five guys to fire blank muskets, and it's remarkable. The idea of thousands, I I, I can't even imagine what that would look like. Wolf was struck with a with a musket ball in the side fairly early on, and died on the field. He uh, <laughs> basically he he had heard that the French forces turned and 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 started retreating after a second British volley. The, the, there were only two real British volleys, and, and the French forces broke. Um, he heard that they had turned and ran. He gave his his aide de camp uh, a couple more orders and said, "Well, now I can die in peace, knowing that it's being done properly." Odd guy. That's so British. It's it's so it's so British. You know, it's it's that battle was it's held up as like a strategic victory. It was so risky. It was a very very gutsy move and it could have broken very badly. The Marquis de Montcalm was also injured in the in the battle. He was hit with uh three different shots and he wouldn't die until the next morning, which sounds just absolutely terrible. The the more famous painting of the two is the death of General Wolfe. I actually have that set as the the banner on my patreon page oh. i just leave that up there it's, it's it makes a good banner but there is also a, a a death of montcalm that i think makes for a more affecting picture well i think looking looking back I, people certainly like to point to it as maybe looking looking back on history and and inputting our own views on it but it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of seen as now you know it's a pyrrhic victory like both sides ended up suffering losses yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, but People no, love I, to extrapolate how that French-English relationship works based off of that. Yeah, definitely. It's 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 more affecting for that reason. I think it's also possibly the the better painting. Um, yeah. Just just artistically speaking. <laughs> Anyways, I, I mean, once the British have Quebec City, though, it's the war doesn't have that much more to play out. Really, there's another victory at Fort Niagara, which basically cuts off all of the Louisiana uh, fortresses from any support from the French. They really rely on that supply chain coming up the St. Lawrence to, to keep them well staffed. And they're not they're not designed to be year-round habitations. Um, so Louisiana falls fairly quickly after that. There is a counterattack by the French on Quebec City, and it's actually a French victory. Not a lot of people realize that there's a second battle at Quebec City. I did in this not war. know that. However, the British don't attack with all of their forces and instead hole up in Quebec City. They've gotten things kind of fortified a little bit better. They've got their artillery on the walls. They feel like they can hold out for a while. This all comes down to a race against time because it is now winter. And when it is winter, you can't get that far up the St. Lawrence safely. It doesn't freeze completely, but there's enough ice on it that you don't really want to mess with it. 
and it ends up being basically a race to see who can get ships and supplies up the St. Lawrence in the spring first. And it turns out that the British are the first ones to be able to do that. They resupply Quebec. Quebec is now safe and, and properly defended. The British Navy continues up until uh, or up to uh, Montreal in June of 1760. There's a Battle of Restigouche in which Montreal is besieged on three sides and taken. And in September of 1760, just a couple months later, the governor of New France, uh, Governor Vaudreuil, negotiates a capitulation terms with the British general, General Amherst. Basically, the terms are uh, everyone in New France gets to keep their homes and property. They're allowed to continue practicing Catholicism, which is a big worry of these French settlers. They're given access to medical treatment and all French regulars. There are many of them, but any French regulars that were actually brought in from France uh, are just returned to France on British ships as prisoners of war until they're dropped off on the continent. Um, so these terms are agreed to. And uh, while the war continues in Europe for another two years, or three years rather, that's that's basically it for the war. It's the end of the um, continental or the New yeah. World Theater. Yeah, France seizes St. John's Newfoundland in, in uh, 1760, but loses it again in 1762. So there is that, but... Other than that, the continent is virtually lost. The Treaty of Paris ends the war in 1763, February 10th specifically. The terms are basically that, well, France was given a choice. Either they could give up all of their Caribbean holdings, or they could give up all of their North American holdings. Which is kind of a no-brainer. It's kind of a no-brainer. I mean, this is a territory that Voltaire called a few acres of snow. That's... That's harsh. That's a little harsh. That's harsh. They do negotiate themselves into being able to keep the uh, uh, two islands off the coast of Newfoundland called uh, Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, um, which they hold to this day. Yep, still Mm -hmm. on to this day. Uh, Basically, they keep it for the fishing rights. Yep. Which is why they have it. Quite smart. To this day. They still employ those fishing rights every once in a while. There's a little... Much, Much to the consternation of on both sides of the border. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. General Amherst, the the guy who signed that capitulation treaty uh, in Montreal, oversees the reallocation of land, especially the French forts uh, along the the Mississippi. And basically all of North American New France is handed over to Britain. There's some backroom stuff that happens in Europe over some specifics of the war there. And it's agreed that any portion of New France west of the Mississippi actually goes to Spain. And... It's the portions east of the Mississippi to the Appalachian Mountains that is turned over to Britain. New Orleans itself is is handed to Spain. Um, that's the only kind of variation from that guideline. And in our classes, that's the end of it. I got a little bit extra for you. Have you ever heard of Pontiac's War? No. Pontiac was an Odawa chief. And warriors from over a dozen First Nations rose up under Pontiac against British troops who in the process of like figuring out all this land stuff and how it works was just like relocating tribes left, right, and center. One of the most tragic things that happens out of the Treaty of Paris is that Britain kind of shows its true colors a little bit on their relationship with First Nations, specifically in that they're not really viewed as partners. They're used as assets. And once there's no more war to really fight on the continent, they try and just sort of shuffle them out of the way. And there's a lot of nations that end up losing, you know, the, their, their heritage territories uh, in, this, in this arrangement. 
So these warriors start attacking mainly forts, uh, mainly these same French forts that are now under British control that kind of police the uh, the frontier. And yeah, like there's there's it's it's not just the real reallocation that's that's a problem here. It's that any pre seventeen sixty three agreements that Britain had with these nations is essentially annulled at this point. They just kind of wipe the board. Like, yeah, I, you know what, but I mean, that's, that's part of the course. It is. That being said, Amherst is one of those people that I think we can take out of the historical context that he's in and say like, no, I think he's a little bad even for like his position in his time because um, he holds the dubious honor of being the only person in history to actually be on record as having infected blankets with smallpox and tried to use it in the fight against Pontiac's warriors. Ah, oh, jeez. It becomes a trope, right? The British giving the, the natives Poison, yeah. smallpox blankets. He's the only one that ever actually did it. Now, uh, he's not the one that suggested it, but someone did say, hey, what about this? And he signed off on it. I'd say that's pretty objectively bad. So, yeah. Not... Not a fan, personally. So these guys, like, what was the outcome of that? Um, questionable. There was already a smallpox outbreak among these nations that summer. The majority of the devastation from smallpox happened very early on uh, in Colombian contact. Like, the first 50 years kind of thing was when the majority of the deaths happened. By this time, they had learned to recognize smallpox and to quarantine people who had it. Um, so they, they had become much better at kind of managing the disease. It was still... Uh, really rough on them but yeah it didn't even really have like a much of a tactical advantage that we can tell um, it's just spiteful I mean he thought it was going to help but I, I, I'm not sure that necessarily forgives anything here Pontiac's war basically ends in a military stalemate for a long time it was regarded as like a, a British victory a native defeat but really what it comes down to is the, the terms uh, that are hashed out in 1766 when Pontiac himself goes to uh, New York to like work this stuff out is that the First Nations stay to the west of the Appalachians and that there's an Indian reserve that's formalized uh, between the Appalachians and the Mississippi. And no British settlers are supposed to be allowed to settle west of the Appalachians. And this was all part and parcel with something called the uh, Proclamation of 1763, which was like the standardization of the borders of uh, the new British North America. But, I mean, Pontiac still kept fighting for uh, better representation for three years before eventually agreeing to this. The current scholarship on this is looking at it as a stalemate, specifically because they believe that Amherst would have gone ahead and taken all of that territory as British territory if, uh, if, if he uh, could. Yeah, if he could have. The people of the newly formed colony of Quebec were granted a number of concessions that, you know, your average British citizen wouldn't have necessarily gotten. Specifically, they were allowed to continue using French law. Uh, which continues to today in Quebec. They actually use a form of Napoleonic law for their uh, civil law. The French uh, language was allowed to be uh, freely spoken. Mm -hmm. uh, the Catholic religion was allowed to be freely practiced. Again, not allowed in any other British colonies. Freedom of emigration was allowed. So if you, after the conquest, wanted to leave New France, you had 18 months to get out without anyone saying anything about it. You could go wherever you wanted. Uh, you had to pay your passage, but that was about it. They did make passage very expensive and that is seen by some people as uh, an attempt to control emigration but 
technically under law it was it was available which again isn't something that's that's freely offered to every colony and you know in terms of the freedom of religion thing uh there were still certain restrictions that went into place for like higher for or higher levels of government that would most likely preclude someone who is Catholic from actually holding those offices. So for the most part, you know, governorships and things like that would be held by English-speaking Anglicans. Yeah. But on the other hand, they didn't forcibly assimilate the French people. The way that this is viewed in Canada today is complicated, to say the very least. Yeah, I think, you know, a, a part of that is assimilation would have been virtually impossible at that point. So I think these concessions were a special case I'm not entirely sure of that. You think so? There were only 70,000 French Canadians left in British North America versus like 2 million British. It would not have been that hard. Like, I mean, that's, that's only seven times more than they forcibly located out of Acadia. Uh, at the same time, I feel like there'd be a lot of French Canadian people who say that the British actively did try and do that and... It did not succeed. That's true. And that's the, and that's the difficulty of, of talking about this. Because in general, people who are pro-British in this whole thing look at this and say, New France was a failing colony that was more peaceful, more economically po prosperous, and more stable under British rule. And those people aren't wrong. But if you speak to anyone in Canada who has a drop of French blood in their veins, or even just sympathizes with the French people, they will tell you that this was uh, an act of conquest and that the British people have been, uh, in one way or another, trying to suppress French culture ever since uh, that battle on the Plains of Abraham. And they're not entirely wrong either. And I think that's the crux of uh, the, the, the conflict yeah, the, between the French- Yeah, somewhere in the middle. Yes, but it's also kind of both of those things completely at the same time. Yeah. Like, it's not just in the middle, but those two things can overlap. I don't think there's anything about that state, those two statements that... They're not mutually exclusive. ...that one or the other must be true or Absolutely. false. And I, and I think that's a starting point to understanding the relationship between French and English Canada. And some compassion towards both of those viewpoints is really important to kind of come to some sort of understanding between those two cultures because they're very distinct cultures and those 70,000 French Canadians that are left form the kernel of modern day Quebec a lot of people in Quebec can trace their lineages back to those French settlers some of them can trace their lineages back to the Fille du Roi uh, those those girls sent over by the, the the French crown to start families There's there's a there's a there's a term in Quebec that it, it's it's called pure laine, which is um, pure wool. Another And very controversial term. It is a controversial term. Um, it, it's it's analogous to you know old stock Canadians that is used sometime in English Canada, and and yeah the the pure laine thing it it ends up sounding kind of a little bit racially charged, but the original meaning of it at least was. This idea of, you know, dyed in the wool, French Canadian can trace my lineage back to true French settlers, not just to people in Quebec, but to actual French settlers from New France. And, you know, it's it's grown to mean a lot more than that and is another very charged term. But like it, it, it is also an insight into like the long memory of these people culturally. And for a long time, French Canadians were 
I don't want to say okay with what had happened, but didn't really say a whole lot about what had happened. But in the 1960s, French Canadians went through what's known as a quiet revolution, mm-hmm. um, where where sort of this there was this awakening very slowly of, of French Canadian identity and and sort of this long simmering resentment at what happened during the Seven Years' War kind of came back to the surface. And obviously it had always been there. It's not as though it was, um, you know, created to foster outrage or something like that, as has been suggested by No, but it's, it's more some, the, but... the legacy of that, of, you know, the supremacy of English institutions in mm-hmm. Quebec, of the supremacy of elite non-French-speaking peoples holding a large amount of power in both the civil service yeah. and private sector. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, to some extent, that still rings true to this day. But, you know, there there has been a much broader discussion. And I think it, you know, to kind of close the loop here, when we talk about our history class, I think part of the reason why we don't cover this so much is because it is, in our nation, probably the biggest sticky issue that nobody's really sure what the preferred history is and yeah either way like just talking about this you're gonna tick somebody off yeah i mean i can i I can think of one or two things that i would i would consider more difficult as a nation to to discuss the the main one being the yeah to put one as the you know the yeah supreme this is the issue yeah yeah the the main one be for for me would be the the residential school system yeah um but but genocide of first nations Yeah. yeah um but but um which which we're only barely starting to come to to grips with like today in, in 2017, which is terrifying and, and heartbreaking. But um, at, at the core of, of sort of Canadian identity, yeah, the, the push and pull between French and English Canada is is really important and has caused a lot of problems. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff that we could go into that would be fascinating that we just have no time to get into. Um, but I, I mean, we, we had a domestic terrorist crisis based on these tensions. It's, it's, a, it's a very real thing in Canada. Uh, we have a kind of placid international uh, reputation, but that's that's certainly not the case internally. And and a lot of that tension does come from uh, the English conquest of New France. You know, those 70,000 French people turn into, you know, 8 million Canadians that speak French as a first language. Uh, a good percentage of those don't speak English at all. There are, there are a lot of Canadians out there who speak only French. There are... Overall, there are 10 million Canadians who speak French. So there are some bilingual English first language Canadians out there. Um, there's also 8 million Americans who speak French. Really? Yes, because you don't... like Remember, it doesn't like conform exactly to modern borders. You have uh, significant concentrations of people in uh, Maine, in Vermont, that are, you know, that still have very strong uh, French backgrounds. Uh, Missouri has uh, concentrations of, fr- of French speakers or, or uh, culturally French people. Does this include like people who speak Creole? Creole it'd be, it is more like Louisiana, but yeah, Creole uh, French is, is a form of, of North American French. Not, no, no North American French is, you know, proper European French, oh my right? Gosh. I mean, if you um, want to tick somebody off, ask a Ask a person from Quebec what they think of Acadian French and vice versa. And oh, and they will tell you. And not not just that, but but the, the differences between proper Parisian French and and the, the standard French in Quebec, which is uh, 
known as joie, which comes from oh. a, which is comes from a pejorative term from the time of New France when there was already a linguistic shift happening, and people in you know old French would uh, would refer to it as joie, which is a, a kind of a mumbled version of cheval, which is the word for uh, for horse. Um, so funny story. So in the in the movie Shrek. <laughs> This is kind of in the movie. I can't Shrek, wait where this in is the going. French dub, the donkey is given like a joual accent. Really, it speaks joual French. Interesting. Um, and apparently, like it's very common in Parisian movies for like backwoodsy characters to be given like a joual accent. Well, yeah, the, the the connotation would be the same as giving somebody like a like a strong Mississippi English accent. Yeah, it, yeah, it, and it's got similar yeah cultural. Uh, implications but yeah it was you know people in france had this kind of backwater impression of of new france and and you know they 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 mumble their words but you know they they say cheval as though they're saying joual and and quebec's kind of just embraced that a little bit i think there's still a little bit of touchiness but i think there's also a defiance that's gone into french canadian identity over the past 250 years absolutely uh, maybe helps them stick up for themselves a little bit but yeah i mean i mean there are 11 million Canadians that identify, like when asked what ethnic group they identify with, refer to themselves as some form of Quebec or some form of French before anything else. So that includes people who identify as French, French Canadian, Quebecois, or Acadian. And I, we should be clear for anyone who's not like super into the whole Canadian identity thing. Quebecois has more connotation to it than just someone who is from Quebec in in Canada, just as though Canadien isn't just the French word for a Canadian person. It has uh, cultural and linguistic implications that go along with it. So that that is a significant word for them. And and yeah, like the we 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 touched on uh, Louisiana on the on the Acadians or the the Cajuns in Louisiana. That's another big pocket of of uh, French identity in in North America. The those seventy thousand people left a significant impact on. North America, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of a, an invisible impact. In Canada, we've kind of enhanced it because over, you know, centuries, for a number of various reasons, we've chosen to protect French Canadian identity in the province of Quebec. And as it's, much it's as they might, a separate system. Yeah, it is very much a separate system. As much as people from Quebec will tell you that their French identity is under threat, it's very healthy for a minority language and for a minority culture. And a lot of that has been through protections from the government who's looking to make sure that that identity isn't threatened. Like we are, we do want to support that. At the same time, that doesn't make the concerns of the people of Quebec who are worried about their cultural identity somehow invalid because that's like, that's an existential dread. That is a- Especially with, you know, mass migrations of peoples, Mm -hmm. large groups of non-French speaking peoples, you know, moving into Quebec, it's, it's always seen as, as a potential threat. Um, yeah. And, and it is, it is overblown to some extent, but at the same time, the Quebecois are already a minority uh, uh, group in Canada. And that dynamic gets very hairy. Like it's, it's, it's really difficult to navigate and we've never quite nailed it. Uh, we're, we're still constantly working in Canada to, to figure out how to deal with this, this heritage of New France, and still not technically a signatory to our 
Yeah, that's that's true. Our uh, our constitution. That's that's a that's an awkward little that's piece. That's a big of, one. It's an awkward little piece of, of history. But I mean, anyways, it's it's funny because if the thanks Brian Mulroney, <laughs> if the British had scattered those settlers the same way they had scattered the Acadians, maybe it would have been easier in a certain sense not to have to address that heritage. You know, as as a as a Canadian and as someone very proud to be Canadian, I certainly don't think that would be better. I think we're richer for having both traditions in our country. Absolutely. And, and um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade that for the world. But, you know, we, we are, no matter what, stuck with this heritage of a conquered people. And that's not a thing that you just get over. We just passed the 250th anniversary of the uh, Battle of the Plains of Abraham uh, eight years ago and nearly had a, uh, an incident <laughs> that could have very easily become violent when people were looking to do a historical recreation uh, for the 250th anniversary, which is a thing that happens for all sorts of battles. That isn't a battle that you can recreate. No. Not on the plains, not outside the capital of uh, the province of Quebec, not with the uh, culturally charged undertones that go along with that. Um, You just can't do it yet. And I, you know, there's... There's, there's a lot of stuff where it's kind of like, ah, you know, you guys need to get used to this. No, not that one. I'll absolutely give that to Quebec. Absolutely. Um, Who would they... want to recreate their cultural groups? Like, you know, most famous defeat. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, death of their previous nation. It's, it's, yeah, it's a little macabre. I mean, it puts, it puts other battle reenactments in a, in a very awkward light when you think about it. It, it very much highlights the whole history written by the victors trope. Um, there's truth to that. There, there is truth to that, but we're, we're in an interesting position in Canada where the defeated party is still not only uh, in existence, but alive and well and, and thriving and has a, a significant voice in our culture. So, yeah, New France. Um, badly covered in seventh grade. Not very exciting. I feel much more up to speed on things now. I'm I'm glad we did this one. I hope this uh, I hope this um, really interests some people who have never ever heard that New France was a thing outside of Canada. But I also really hope that some Canadians hear this and go, "Oh, that's what they were trying to get across." Like, "Oh, that's what that's what I was supposed to get out of this talk about New France and uh, about the three sisters and about longhouses and the seigneurial system." And do yourself a favor. There are so many amazing books out there that cover French interactions with First Nations groups. And just like if the stories that are told, if that's what they had covered in history class, I'm sure a lot more of us would have been mm-hmm. historians. Well, I mean, it's it's things like this that made me want to do this podcast in the first place. Absolutely. Right? So, um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm really thrilled that we got to got to talk about New France today. And uh, oh, what a, what a strange and fascinating and, gory and exciting period of history so in yeah our thanks. Own backyard right right in our own backyard a lot of things happening you you can as a canadian you can look on a map and find things happening uh not that far off from from where you live today it's 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 quite remarkable so thank you so much for coming on today for uh for a discussion about this topic uh i was i was really excited to do this one so i really appreciate it yeah thanks for having me i appreciate it
France would only come close to holding so much land in North America one more time. When they purchased Spain's 1763 grant from them briefly at the beginning of the 19th century, only to turn around and sell it to the United States in the Louisiana Purchase. However, the French language and the heritage of New France has never been stronger than it is today. Next time on HI 101, we'll be talking about the Black Death. That episode will be up on June 1st. Since HI 101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.